also been reading about many of the things that have been going on in China and the persecution that has been growing there, especially with their whole surveillance that, that system that they are building there in that country. But really what, what prompted um, this message was what happened on February 1st of this year. And this is why I sent out in February the desire for us as a church body to spend the month of February praying for the persecuted church. But then really I have felt the need to, to say, you guys, let's keep this going for the whole year. To really be praying for the persecuted church. Because on February 1st, there was a military coup in Myanmar. And why should that be important to us? Well, our church has been involved in Myanmar for, since uh, 2005. I personally have been going there every single year since 2006. Uh, and the, in fact, the very first year I missed was last year because of, of uh, or, or actually was this year because of COVID. I went last year just as COVID was getting started. Melissa and I were over there. But um, I mean, this, this, I go and I know, I know these people and I have gotten to know them. And, and, and over the time, we, we really started out by supporting a couple of Bible colleges and we've supported orphanages and we have supported dozens of church plants. This right here is one of the, 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 the Bible conferences and this is one of the things we would do on an annual basis, a Bible conference where we bring in the various missionaries from around Myanmar that have gone out to plant churches and uh, we have just a week-long period of building them up and encouraging them and in the early days of going there it was very interesting because if you know the history of Myanmar Myanmar um, uh, up until 2010 was an absolutely closed country and when we would go into Myanmar we would go under the auspices of being tourists and we would get our visas and we'd sign a thing that would say, you know, we weren't going to do anything else but tourist things and, and where we were actually going in for the, for the purpose of the gospel, but we didn't want the government to know that. We'd smuggle in Bibles and, 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 and some funds and, and then uh, some other things that we would smuggle in. And, um, and then within these conferences, especially in the early years, we would always dedicate the afternoons for the missionaries to give their testimonies. And it was the first time where I was around brothers and sisters who were legitimately persecuted for their faith. Now I know that, that those of us here in this country, we've suffered some persecution, but really what, what is our persecution to be called God squatters, uh, Jesus freaks, I, I've been spit on once, but, but big deal. I mean, these guys know what it is to face persecution. I remember one of the, the, the first times I was there, I heard a guy named Min Min give his testimony. And he talked about um, a, a, an evangelist came through his village and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, right, of Jesus for the first time when he was 13 years old. He knew right then and there that it was the truth, and he prayed and gave his life to the Lord. And 
Uh, he was all excited except for his family who was Buddhist. The, the country is primarily Buddhist. His family who was Buddhist said, you renounce Jesus Christ right now. And, and Min Min said, no, I have found the truth. I'm not going to do that. And then there, his family said, well, then you are no longer a member of our family. We consider you to be dead. And they literally kicked him out of their family at 13 years old. And the reason why we got to know him is because he went to live in one of the orphanages that we were supporting. And, and it's interesting because I think he was about 27 years old, I heard the last time, or 28, something like that. He took his wife and his kids to go meet his parents. He figured maybe after all these years, his parents would finally be open to a relationship with them. And they got there to his village and they met his parents. And thinking that his parents would welcome him, but they, they said, our son Min Min died many years ago. And they wanted nothing to do with him. I remember meeting this one guy or listening to this one guy's testimony. Uh, I can't remember his Burmese name, but, I, but his, uh, his, his name, his Christian name, it was Elijah. And he told about when an evangelist came to his village and uh, he was also a teenager and he knew that this evangelist was telling the truth. So he prayed to receive the Lord and he went to his parents and told them all about it. And his dad said, no, you renounce this faith. We are a Buddhist family. We're going to stay a Buddhist family, all of us. And so we do not want you to, to be a Christian. And, and Elijah, he, he refused to renounce Christ. And so his dad, being somewhat of a typical Burmese dad, he, he roughed up Elijah, kind of beat him up a little bit, not too severely, but, but let him know physically that this was not acceptable. And Elijah, he said, I'm not going to deny. And so his dad kicked Elijah out of the house. And he had been gone for about a week and the, <laughs> the cool thing about the story is his dad missed Elijah so much and his mom and the brothers, and so they missed Elijah so much that they found him and they said, we're all going to become Christians. And, and because, you know, it'd come back into the family, which was great, right? Well, except for the problem is that they lived in a very Buddhist village. And the Buddhist villagers showed up at the house when they found out that they were Christians and they said, we will essentially give you three options. The first is to renounce Jesus and stay and live in peace, right? You go back to Buddhism. The second is for you to not renounce uh, uh, Jesus, for you to stay here and we will stone you. And they literally showed up with rocks in their hands. And, uh, and then they said, or the third option essentially is to leave, to flee. And, and, and really, they, they couldn't take anything. They had to leave right then and there. And they chose to leave, right? They as a family. And so I'm sitting there listening to these stories, and I, I was just so blessed, especially when I think of the minimum amount that, that I have um, uh, been persecuted in my life. Now let me just show you a couple of pictures just so you guys get to know. So at the conferences, we would, we would teach them and there's our dear friend Josiah who was teaching. What do you think he was teaching on? Anyone have a guess, right? The full armor of, of Christ. And, and this is one of the outreaches. Now um, in 2010, they had a major change happened. The, the, the head 
general, up until uh, this point, the head general, it was a military junta that was in charge. The head general resigned and, and well, retired. Uh, his name was Tran Shui, one of the most evil men who exists on the planet when you think of the things that, that he ordered. The new general, a guy named Tan Sen, he was a decent guy and he cared about the people of Myanmar and he looked at their future and realized, okay, China, they have a border. Myanmar has the second largest natural gas deposit in the world and they realize okay we're sitting ducks and we have no friends if the Chinese come and invade us so they reached out to the United States and they said will will you uh, consider establishing full diplomatic ties and the United States said sure but here's what you have to do the State Department gave them a long list Hillary Clinton went there to say this is what you have to do first thing that they had to do is that the that the military junta had to begin stepping down and going to a democratically elected government on Sushi. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but you can you can Google her. She was under house arrest because she had won uh, the election the last time by over 90 percent, and and there were all there were all these others who were under arrest, political prisoners, and they released them all, and they established started establishing this diplomatic right right I mean this this uh, democracy, and things were great, and for the first time. Uh, the country opened up. And the reason why I'm showing this picture is this is an outreach. Now, this is something that we never, ever would have been able to do because we had to stay undercover when we went in the early days. I mean, we would go and visit someone's home uh, and go see one of the house churches. We had to actually bribe one of the local officials uh, because their neighbors would turn them in because there were some Westerners who visited them. So we'd bribe the local officials. Um, and whenever we would, we'd go immediately from the taxi cab straight into the house, put on a baseball cap and sunglasses, not linger outside, just go straight in, not draw any attention. And here we are having this outreach in, in, in an area that up until this point, there were no Westerners that were even allowed into this area. And then all of a sudden, here we are and we're getting the chance to share the gospel. Many of these people hearing the name Jesus for the first time. Keep going. Uh, okay, and this man, this, this is the fruit of these outreaches. I forget this guy's name. This was at the outreach. He and his wife, they're a Buddhist family, and, and they heard about this. They heard the, the noise and the things because we had a, a sound system set up, and we were giving out food, and so they showed up, and they knew that what they heard was the truth. They became believers, and this guy now is one of the elders in the church, and it's so exciting, and, and, and we've got a few more pictures. Keep going. Um, this is one of the orphanages that we uh, support. If you look down at the, at the little guy in the front, his name was Stephen. He had just arrived in this picture and he knew he had it, it, he had no one in the entire world and this dear family uh, uh, Kenneth over there on the far right and then his wife Eunice who's below the standing below the tall guy in the back um, and they opened up their home and started this this uh, this orphanage uh, in, next picture if we've got it uh, this is a typical picture of a house church where they're meeting in one of the homes there and playing the guitar just like we do, and they open their Bibles just like we do, and, and, and keep going. Uh, and this is another outreach that, that we had done in an area that there's no way that we ever could have gone in, and yet there we were, by the grace of God, okay, in the next picture. Um, uh, this is in another village that was absolutely off limits. One of the reasons why is it's on the way to their capital 
It's, it, uh, and I'm, I showed you this picture. The people in Myanmar are very poor. And you can see how poor they are in how tall they are. Because they don't really have enough food to grow their bodies. If you were to meet a typical Burmese person here in America who's grown up here in America, they're the same height pretty much as all of us, maybe a little bit shorter. But pretty much all of the Burmese people, or so many of them, are this height. Just like that, which, you know, I'm not complaining because it's the first time I, I know what it's like to be tall, right? I'm kind of a short guy. That's my son there on the left. Next picture. Um, uh, 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 this is the pastor and his wife of the church that meets out in that village that we were, uh, and his name's Gam, Gam Fung, and he's a dear man. And anyways, I think, is that it? Do we have any other pictures? I, I, I think that's it. Now, the reason why I'm showing you this is because on February 1st, this military coup happened. And I'm just trying to put some, 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 some names and some faces. Because we hear about persecution around the world and we think about it globally, but, but for most of us Americans, it's out of sight, out of mind. But I'm wanting to show you guys these people because I know what's coming. And with the reestablishment, because of this coup, they, they have arrested Aung San Suu Kyi and other political leaders. And the one thing that to me is a little bit more scary this time is that, is that now they have opened up and they want full diplomatic relations with China. They really, it would appear, aren't so concerned about their relationship with us anymore. And so I think, okay, what's going to happen to these people? Because I know what's coming. I know at least from their government and what will happen. And, uh, you know, every year we, we hear stories and things that happen around the world of, of different things that go on, persecution and that kind of thing. But for most of us, like I said, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about the persecuted church. And, um, and I, I want to because I, I believe it's important for us to, to understand this and to get a burden for them. And you'll see why as we go through this. These are our brothers and sisters, right? Our brothers and sisters in the Lord, you guys. We live in freedom, so we cannot relate to what they... These are our brothers and sisters who suffer even unto death because they believe in Jesus and they will not deny him. So, the outline for today. Here is my outline for you note-takers. The first thing I want to talk about is, is, is a biblical and historical perspective of persecution. Because it's important we understand a good, healthy perspective of persecution. Okay? Uh, the second one is a current report on what is happening right now in the world in the area of persecution. And then lastly, uh, I would want to ask the question, what does this mean for us? What are we to do? And in that, the last question that I'm going to ask is, how do we know? How do you know that if you were faced with persecution, things radically changed, and you were looking down the barrel of a gun, and you were said either you deny Jesus Christ right now or it's the end of your life, how would you respond to that? Because I believe I have an answer of how you would respond. And I'm not saying everybody would respond the same way, but I do believe I have an answer. So, and uh, time willing, we'll go through this. If we don't, we'll, we'll finish this up next week.
But persecution, it takes many forms, right? We're talking about real persecution. For us, it's a few name callings. We, we, we hear, you know, of, of old friends who talk about us behind our back. I've, I've heard some things said about me by my old fraternity brothers. And that. But that, you know, that's really the, the, the most persecution any of us will ever face. I do understand that it does happen in America, especially in, in some families that, that, were, that are a strict Muslim family and that kind of thing. Um, or I know that persecution does happen oftentimes when, say, like a husband or a wife becomes a believer and then they're persecuted by their spouse. I get that. But, but, but let's first off make sure we have a healthy understanding of, of persecution, right? To get the biblical and historical perspective of persecution. And let's also establish something. We're talking about the persecution uh, of believers, right, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you can read Hebrews chapter 11, and no, persecution existed long before Christianity or, or Jesus' coming, right? And you can read Hebrews 11, this hall of faith, and it talks about a number of people who were persecuted. But for these purposes, we're really talking about the persecution of believers, now, just for, for a little, for your information, I did some study on this. And uh, it is estimated that there have been 70 million, 70 million of our brothers and sisters who were put to death for their faith since Jesus Christ until now. 70 million. You know, one of the most deadly centuries of all was the 20th century. And what happened by the, uh, in Germany under the Nazi, you know, Nazi Germany and the number of people who died, believers who died, and then in Russia under Stalin, and many of those were Russian Orthodox, but, but, but it, it's believed that up to 15 million Christians were put to death in the 20th century. And, you know, we hear of people being beaten. We hear of people who have lost their homes, their property, their family, uh, terrible discrimination. And we hear this, and we hear people being put to death. And I don't know about you, but my response can be so often, how terrible, how awful that our brothers and sisters have had to go through something like that. And, and, and the natural knee-jerk response to hearing that is to pray, God, please relieve them from their suffering. Please end their suffering, end their persecution. But when we pray that, that really shows that we have an unhealthy perspective of persecution. Because we need to understand something. Persecution is not a bad thing. In fact, I would say persecution is a good thing. It's a good thing. Nowhere in the Bible does it speak of persecution in a negative way. Now, obviously persecution for things that are not of the gospel, that's something else. But we're talking about persecution, suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. And you really have to ask the question, well, well, when did persecution start? Who was the first to experience persecution? You could say, well, was it Stephen? I mean, he was the first martyr, right? He, he was put to death. He was the very first believer who was put to death. Or you could look then at the, before that, really, another example of persecution was when the disciples 
were arrested and beaten and then they, were, then they left and they, they were rejoicing and praising God that they were deemed worthy to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. But it's important that we really understand where persecution started. And it started with our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where it started, okay? And it's important that we understand this. This is where it started. And we know we can, we can read about, uh, let's just take the day that he was arrested. We know that he was arrested. We know that he was interrogated. We know that they put a bag over his head and they beat him and then said, prophesy which one of us hit you. He was flogged. They put the, the crown of thorns on his, on his head. And then they nailed him to a cross, Right? You could think of the, 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 the persecution, right? But let me say this. The real persecution for Jesus really then happened when he was on the cross. Because it was then that he received, you could call it that persecution, but it's a, a much better word is the word justice for the sin of all mankind. And he received that within a six-hour period where he paid for the sins of every single human being. The penalty for sin is, is death, to be separated from God forever and ever in hell. That's the penalty for sin. God does not want that. And so Jesus came and he paid in full when he hung on the cross. He literally took to hell for every single human being who has ever lived. You could say that the, that the suffering of, and, and total suffering, not just persecution, but the total suffering that every single person has ever experienced in their lifetime, add it all together, and that would pale in comparison to what the Lord experienced for you and for me when he went to the cross. And it's important that we understand this because then we can understand, well, why is it healthy to have a good perspective that persecution is a good thing? And I want to share with you some verses that I think really highlight this because this persecution really is a part of suffering, of sharing in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this is part of the Christian life that we share in his sufferings. Now, for those of us who live here in America, we don't share in many of those sufferings. Certainly the people, though, who live in these other places do. But how about Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18? Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. If indeed, right, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Or how about for the Philippians, right? And, and Paul is writing from uh, house arrest, you know, jail when he is in Rome. And this is what he has to write to them. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. There is a depth that comes from that suffering and that persecution that only comes that way. That's why I think that the people who actually live across the world and endure the things that, that, that you and I have never had to endure, that they're actually in a much better place as far as building up their faith and understanding. God help us, right? Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. 
Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And Peter, you know, and we actually, there's a reason why we read the chunk of scripture when we started. In the service today, we started reading from, from Peter's first letter. Peter wrote this letter. Why did Peter write this letter? Peter wrote this letter to the churches, the believers that, you know, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, and all that. But essentially, if you were to think of modern-day Turkey, the believers who were living in modern-day Turkey. And he wrote to them for a very specific reason. He wrote to them because they were facing tremendous persecution. And they're wondering what's going on. You see, at this point, Emperor Nero, who is, I mean, he was determined to destroy Christianity, and he murdered and, 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 and tortured so many believers. And so here are these people, and they are suffering, and so, so Peter writes to them, and he says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And then he also, as we read in 1 Peter, and I'll just read verses 6 through 8, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith um, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy." You see, I'm trying to establish the fact that suffering is a good thing. That it's not a bad thing because it begins with our Lord Jesus Christ and there is a way of developing a relationship with him that comes through that suffering. And one of the reasons why I'm bringing this up is this then should change the way that we pray for people who are persecuted. And I am most guilty, right, of, of wanting to pray for them. Lord, stop them. Change the government. Change the conditions. Lord, haven't they suffered enough? Give them, spare them this, right? That's what I want to pray, but I think a much deeper way of praying for them is God strengthen them as they are understanding this level of suffering that you experience, right? There is, there is a level of suffering that they know because of persecution and to change my prayers a little and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while but it should change the way that we look at suffering and and for ourselves and and quite frankly you know when i think of uh of the church in america uh, and i i do believe that we very well in the years to come may face persecution for the first time that it may be coming and especially if the Lord is coming back soon, that's a guarantee. And it will be for our good. It'll be for the good of the true believers, people who truly believe in Jesus Christ. It will be for our good. 
And, you know, and just so you know, those in Myanmar are people, you know, we've stayed in contact with these people. They pray for us regularly. And one of the things they actually pray for us is for the depth of our relationship because they know that we don't suffer like they have had to suffer. And they know that we haven't really come to an understanding like they do. And so they pray for us that God would still build that maturity in us. And I'm so, I'm so appreciative of that. Of that. But it's a, it's, it is a healthy perspective to understand persecution and then it's not a bad thing. Um, so then the next question is, how about a report on what is happening right now, currently, in the world that you and I live in? What is going on in regards to persecution of our fellow believers around the world? And Open Doors is a ministry that probably is the foremost ministry when it comes to studying global persecution and they actually have come out with something and i would encourage you to download it and look it over and it gives you a different ways to pray but it's the world watch list and so i'll be reading a few things from the world watch list but um one of the things they said is that COVID has changed persecution some, and one of the reasons is this. Because of the fact that the world has been closed down, uh, in many of the poor countries, they have had to provide food and things for various people out in the villages and that kind of thing, and there's been more of a humanitarian relief effort. However, what they have found, and especially in the country of India, Open Doors interviewed a number of their people when it came to them giving out food, and they said that 80% of the people that they interviewed said that when, when the Christians in India went to collect the food that was being handed out, 80% of them were turned away because they, they were Christians. But within their annual report, here's just a few, uh, a few statistics. Now think of these numbers. Over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 340 million Christians live in persecution. Uh, last year, 4,761 that they know of, I'm sure there were many others that they don't, were killed for their faith. You know what? That's an average of 13 people a day, 13 of our brothers and sisters a day who choose to take a bullet or be hung or whatever because they won't deny Jesus Christ. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings attacked, and I'm sure this is far more than that when you consider the house churches, but the, these are the ones they know of. Um, and then 4,277 believers detained without trial, though I know that this number is way higher that, than that, especially when we look at, at, um, at North Korea, but these are, these are you know, things that they can point to and say factually. Uh, under the world watch list, and I'll refer to that in a second, 309 million, and, and the, the world watch list uh, covers the top 50 countries when it comes to persecution. The 309 million in those countries live in persecution, and, then that, and it means one in eight Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. So here's the top 10 list, and I hope you don't find this to be tedious, but I hope you guys will listen to this and understand this is what our brothers and sisters go through, okay? These are the top 10 countries right now where people are experiencing persecution, and this is the list, and this is North Korea. 
And I'll just read a little bit of an excerpt. Being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence in North Korea. If you aren't killed instantly, you will be taken to a labor camp as a political criminal. These inhumane prisons have horrific conditions, and few believers make it out alive. Everyone in your family will share the same punishment. Kim Jong-un is reported to have expanded the system of prison camps in which an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned. That's, that's uh, North Korea. Number two, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, living openly as a Christian is impossible. Christians, uh, Christian converts face dire consequences in their new faith if their new faith is discovered. Essentially, converts have two options, flee the country or risk being killed. If their family discovers their conversion, the family, clan, or tribe must save its honor by disowning the believer or even killing them. Christians from a Muslim background can also be sent to a psychiatric hospital because they are leaving Islam, which is considered a sign of insanity. That's Afghanistan. Somalia. In Somalia, Islam is considered crucial, a crucial part of Somali identity, just being suspected of converting to Christianity is a death warrant. Members of believers' families, clan, or community will harass, intimidate, or even kill them. Female converts, and this is one of the saddest, female converts are at a high risk for rape and forced marriage. And if a Christian man is killed or abducted, he leaves his whole family unprotected and marked by his conversion. Libya is number four. In Libya, there's no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion, and very limited possibility of public church life. Christians from a Muslim background face violent pressure from their family and community to renounce their faith. They, as well as foreign Christians, are also vulnerable to abduction or murder by Islamic militants and crime groups. Sharing your faith publicly is illegal. Those who try risk violent opposition, arrest, and even death. Pakistan, number five. Christians in Pakistan face extreme persecution in every area of their life, with converts from Islam facing the highest levels. However, all Christians are considered second-class citizens, inferior to Muslims. Often they are given jobs perceived as low, dirty, or dishonorable, and can even be victims of bonded labor, in other words, forced into slavery. Increasingly, Christian girls are at risk of abduction and rape, often forced to marry their attackers and coerced into converting to Islam. Now stop for a minute and think. For those of you parents who have daughters, think about that. I mean, man, oh man, that, to me, that would be the worst of all. Okay? Number six, Eritrea. And you know, we have an Eritrean church that's been using our building for a number of years. They meet uh, in the evenings here at City Calvary Chapel, and this is Eritrea. Christians from non-traditional denominations face the harshest, harshest persecution in Eritrea, both from the government and from the Eritrean Orthodox Church, which is the only Christian denomination recognized by the government. I find it interesting that they're the ones, this are quote-unquote Christians, are the ones that are doling out the persecution. 
But it says government forces monitor phone calls and conduct countless raids that target Christians and can lead to arrest and imprisonment without trial. Many Christians are held in the country's intricate tunnel system of inhumane prisons. Their loved ones may not know where they are, are or even if they are still alive. And remember, you guys, I sent out in a letter that there was a church recently where 700 people were shot. They emptied out the church in Eritrea and they gunned down 700 people. Not all of them died, but still imagine that, 700. Number, si number seven, Yemen. In Yemen, Christians usually keep their faith secret. Leaving Islam is forbidden, and all Yemenis are considered Muslims by the state. It's not just the authorities who persecute Christians. Islamic extremists and tribes may kill anyone who converts to Christianity. Christians are additionally vulnerable in the ongoing war, humanitarian crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic because emergency relief is mostly distributed through local Islamic leaders who often discriminate against anyone not considered to be a devout Muslim. Number eight, Iran. The Iranian government sees the conversion of Muslims to Christianity as an attempt by Western countries to determine to, excuse me, to undermine the Islamic rule of Iran. Christians from a Muslim background are persecuted the most primarily by the government. Secret churches are often raided, leading to arrests and long prison sentences for crimes against national security. Domestically, some Christians in nominal Muslim families find acceptance, but converts from stricter Muslim families face more persecution at home. Number nine, Nigeria. Violent attacks from Islamic extremism groups like Boko Haram, um, uh, Hassau Fulani Muslim militant herdsmen, ISIS, uh, Iswap, and others are common in North and Middle Belt of Nigeria if they become more common farther south. Or, excuse me, and they're becoming more common farther south. Militants often murder Christians to destroy their property and means of livelihood. Men and boys are particularly vulnerable to being killed. We hear about the girls. We don't hear as much about the men and boys. But it says they're, they're particularly vulnerable to being killed. The women and children they leave behind are often displaced to... Uh, informal camps face sexual violence and are even at risk of abduction and forced marriage. And then finally rounding out the 10th, India. In India, persecution is growing in leaps and bounds. But it says Hindu extremists believe that all Indians should be Hindus and that the country should be rid of Christianity and Islam. To achieve this goal, they use extensive violence, particularly targeting Christians from a Hindu background, right? The converts, those that grew up Hindu, they target them that have become believers. In their villages, Christians are accused of following a foreign faith and often physically attacked. If they don't reconvert, their community may boycott them with the devastating effect on their ability and on their ability to earn income and buy food. And you can read other various reports, the number of churches and things that are attacked in India, especially in the outlying villages. And you know what I find interesting about that list, that top 10 list? You know who was not even on that list? There are ways down, China. 
Me. So you realize, and you guys, I hope you don't find this boring. I hope you don't find this tedious. But these are our brothers and sisters. Imagine if it was your brother. I have a great brother. I love him. He looks just like me. He's a little bit taller. We're we're, we're quirky. He likes clothes a little bit more than I do. But I love my little brother. I love him. And it would break my heart to think of him or his wife, or my nieces being persecuted. I have a great sister. Her name is Julie. She's my big sister. Blonde hair. Kindest person you could ever possibly imagine. Her husband's rich. They had one son who died who was in the military. They've got three other kids who are alive. And I think, what about them? What if they were the ones who were suffering? Right? My brethren. But you guys, we should have the same idea about our Christian brothers and sisters. I think it's important that we understand this and that we we help to share their burdens, so to speak, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So we got a glimpse, you know, just a glimpse, and I would encourage you to download that and read through it, and it also gives really good ways to pray. So, you know, so we've we've, we've got a biblical perspective. Persecution is not bad. It is a reality. Jesus, in fact, said, you know, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. It is reality. It's not such a reality for those of us who live here in America today. It's kind of like we won the lottery when it comes to persecution that people experience here in the, in the world today. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it is not a bad thing. Persecution is a good thing. Um, but at the same time, we also learned about the, the global history over time and then what is going on now. So then the next question is this, what are we to do about it? How are we to respond? Here we are, a bunch of Americans sitting here in this, this, this sanctuary, not facing persecution. What are we to do about it? Because, you know, this is happening across the oceans, Right? What are we to do about it? Well, here are a first, first few things. And I, before I read through these, let me first say be thankful. Be thankful for our country. Be thankful for our heritage. And that, and that we do live in a, in a country where we don't go through that kind of suffering. I think it would be for our good if we did. But at the same time, to be thankful to the Lord you know, the way, I, like I said, it's kind of like we won the persecution lottery, that we aren't faced with persecution on, on, a, on a regular basis. Be thankful. We are saved by grace, however. We're not saved by the amount we're persecuted. We are saved by grace. So, what are we to do? Number one, remember them, okay? For you note takers, when it comes to the persecution, to remember them. And this is what God has impressed upon me, and I, I hope perhaps maybe he's impressing upon you that it has to begin with us remembering them, to think about them, because they're out of sight, out of mind. They, they are in countries across the oceans. They don't look like us. They don't talk like us. Their culture is completely different than us, and it can be easy to not relate to them and not think about it. But we need to remember them. And what really prompted me on this is as I was doing my devotions and reading in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
That's how we're to remember them. That, that we remember them in this way, we would care, that we would care enough about them. Remember them. Put ourselves in their shoes for a little while. Think about them. Think about what it's like to stare down the barrel of a gun. Think about what it's like to be kicked out of your family. Think about what it's like to have your daughter kidnapped and taken away and sold to a Muslim man. Think about these things and remember these people. But then the second thing, obviously the remembering just gets us going. So then what do we do after we're thinking about them and remembering the next obvious thing and most important thing is that we pray for them, right? We pray for them. But, but to understand how important, you may think that your prayers in, in your world Right? How is God going to listen to your little prayers and impacting those people that you know, you've never met or whatever on the other side of the world? You know, how are those prayers going to make any difference? How are they even important? Well, let me show you a verse that underscores the importance of prayer. Of prayer when we pray for our brothers and sisters when it comes to persecution. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. I urge you, brothers... By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do you understand what that means? That means when we pray for them, we literally join in their struggle. Which, to, to me, takes this whole notion of prayer to a whole nother level. That it's a way that we can join in and join with them. Right? We join in. And then the next question is, how should we pray for them? Well, I'm not saying that we can't pray to have their suffering relieved. Right? Paul would even ask for prayer that, that, that he could be rescued and that kind of thing. I, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dissuade us from praying that, but let's remember that we are to pray for the most important things when it comes to how do we pray for them. And I just look at the prayers, uh, the prayer requests that Paul himself asked for when he was persecuted. Right? And these give us an idea of the best ways for us to begin our prayers for them. In, in talking, in writing to the Second Corinthians, and evidently as he was going through and doing his ministry, in his various missionary journeys, he faced a lot of persecution. And he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. And, so, and, uh, and on him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us uh, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answers to the prayers of many. So, so just that prayer of endurance and continuing on. Let's look at another one. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, I mean, this, this is, I think, one of the most important prayers that we could pray for a, a persecuted people. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. 
pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I mean, you think, man, what a noble thing to pray for these brothers and sisters, that they would have the strength and courage to proclaim the gospel even though they face severe consequences. How about Colossians chapter four, verses two through four? Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message. Right there, that's a prayer we could pray, that God would open a door for these persecuted people in their villages and that kind of thing. That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And these are, these are some ideas. But my point being, you know, in our prayers, not to be so quick to pray for their rescue and to pray that they don't have to go through it, but we pray that for their strength and their bravery to stand firm and to, and to declare the truth. And then the third thing, so we've talked about the ways that we, to remember them, um, pray for them, and a third thing that we can do that is a tangible thing we can do is to give for them. And if you're wondering, well, how can you give? Well, we, we, we are knowing of some needs in Myanmar. We're getting them some extra money because now all of a sudden after the coup, it is more and more difficult for them to buy things and the prices have gone up dramatically. But as well, I would encourage you to do some investigation perhaps. Check out the ministry, Open Doors. I would recommend that ministry or Voice of the Martyrs. They are some ministries that actually help the persecuted church. And you may want to pray about and consider giving to them but we can give of our resources to them and then the fourth thing is be prepared yourself for persecution you see one of the reasons why I'm wanting to talk about this and believe it or not just to let you guys know we host a bi-monthly pastors gathering uh, and uh, we were going around, and we had it on Tuesday and so uh, area Calvary pastors met here on Tuesday, and, and many of us from around basically the Puget Sound region were talking about things, and we were sharing what's going on in our church. And I shared when it got to my turn that God has impressed it upon me that we as a church be praying for the persecuted church. And what was interesting is a number of the guys said, Exactly, and they said we are experiencing the exact same thing, that we are feeling the need to encourage our people to be praying for the persecuted church. I mean, it really seems like the Holy Spirit is doing something, and one of the things that they all said, and I agree with that, is I think one of the best things that we can do to prepare our own people for persecution when it does come is to get us all remembering the persecuted church, praying for the persecuted church, learning about them, and that we will be in better position to experience it when it does and that we won't shrink back, we won't back down, we won't be in fear. Because you do feel that it is coming, I mean, there are, this, this world that we live in is changing at a breakneck speed. Len read, read us last week about what is happening in France. I know of a pastor that's been arrested up in Canada. 
And, and legislation being passed, uh, passed here potentially in America that could lead to persecution of churches and that kind of thing. If we stand true to the word of God and stand on what it says, we can take the easy way and change or we can say, no, this is what God's word says. This is what we teach. And there will be consequences. You can, you can feel it building. And, and what happens, I don't know. But, but I think we all need to be prepared for it. Now, if you remember, when I was at the beginning, I mentioned a question. And the question is this. And I'm sure many of you have asked yourself this question. If you were faced with the barrel of a gun, and you were told at that moment, you either renounce your faith or die, what would you do? How would you respond to that? What will you or I do? And the answer is, it depends. And it depends on what? And I believe it depends on how clear you are on what you believe and why. Do you understand that? That you understand what it is you believe and why. What is it that, that you believe? Uh, well, you know, coming up here in a couple weeks is Easter Sunday. And what do we celebrate and remember about Easter Sunday? And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Really, you could begin there. What do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, it, that, that he really did that, that he's God and he did that, then that should have a massive impact on your life. Or if you're unsure about that, then that will have a massive impact. And... And the reason why I'm saying this is for us to be clear on what it is we believe in. What is it that grounds your faith, my faith? Is it grounded on feeling? I think there's a lot of people who would say, I believe just because I know it's true. I feel it. I feel it in my gut. I feel it in my belly because I believe that the Bible is true. Well, that may sound good, but what about the Mormons who do the same thing and they call that the burning in the bosom. You see, what happens when all of a sudden that person no longer has those feelings and they're so set on those feelings? What happens to their faith? What happens to their faith? I'm reading a, a, a great book. I would highly recommend it. And then I, I recommend you give it to some non-believers too, especially those of the more scientific mind. But it's a great book. It's called Reflections on the Existence of God by Richard Simmons. And he has a term in there. And the term that he uses is irresponsible faith. And what he's talking about are those people who believe and the only reason they believe is because they believe. They don't really, they can't really articulate why they believe. And the reason why that's irresponsible faith is when all of a sudden they begin feeling a different way because their faith is not established on something firm. It's easy to walk away from that faith and have that faith not last. He also uses the term irresponsible atheism. Because there's a whole lot of atheists who say they're atheists because, well, that's just what they believe. That's just what they feel is right. And, and, and the question is, why? Why does someone believe? 
Why does someone not believe? We need to be clear with that because when we are clear with that and if we believe, especially when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we are convinced of that and know that to be true, no matter what comes, we'll be prepared for that. We'll be prepared for that. And if you are set on that, I believe that on the day that you would stand before someone with a loaded gun pointed at your face and saying, deny or die, that you would respond, and, and I believe I would respond this way for those who know why we believe, we're convinced on what we believe and why, our response would be, you better aim straight because the Bible says for me to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So make your shot count. And how do I know that you would respond this way? And the answer is not because of you, but because of God. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, remember when we got there and he talked about his suffering? He said something that the Lord said. And he said, God said, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. And I believe in that moment, the Lord's grace will be sufficient for you and for me. You know, we might think, wow, would that be true? Well, that's what the Bible says. The Lord's grace is sufficient. If you're unsure as to why you believe, well, the first thing I do is begin doing some investigation. There's all the evidence in the world to just if you look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ to know that it is an absolute historical fact proven as much as any other fact more so than has happened in all of history that it's not just some made up fairy tale but this is real and we can believe and do some study if you doubt that you'll prove it to yourself you know there have been many who have tried to disprove the gospel. And, they, and, and pretty much all of them who have gone out to disprove the gospel started with one thing, and that is if they could disprove the resurrection, then they've shot the whole thing down, and that's absolutely right. And many of them went out to do this. In fact, one of them, I forget the guy's name, but he was, he was the dean of the, of the Harvard Law School. And he, they wind up proving that it actually happened, and they all become born-again believers. But I... If you're unsure as to what you believe, then do some investigation and build that foundation. Know what you believe and why. And I believe on that day you'll stand there and you'll take whatever it is because of the grace of God and God's grace is sufficient. So what are we to do after a message like this? Well, I, I would hope that we would remember them. Remember the persecuted church. Again, these are people that are out of sight, out of mind. You and I live these busy American lives with a whole lot of responsibilities. And that kind of thing, it can be very easy to just get focused in on our own lives rather than, than remembering a group of people that we've never seen, we don't know. But you know, I want to remind you, the reason why I started out by showing those pictures in Myanmar is those millions of people, 340 million people, they're people with a face and with feelings. They're God's creation, they're his children, and there are, they are his brothers and sisters. And, and to pray for them. And I find that it's helpful if I know things like this world watch list that I can use it as, as a platform to pray some from. 
but to remember them and to pray for them. And remember what it is we're praying for, not necessarily that they escape the persecution, but that God sustains them, opens doors, strengthens their backs, and helps them. We can still pray that God helps them escape from it. Yes, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. But first and foremost, to remember, persecution's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. And then to give if the Lord would, would lead us in that. And then lastly, to be prepared. Be prepared ourselves for when that day comes. And I believe the best preparation for us is to know what we believe and why. Amen? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity that we've had to to talk about the persecuted church. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would, first off, bring conviction to me. And I want to confess that so much of my Christian life, I have not prayed for them. I've been too busy praying for my own immediate needs, or not praying, and just focused on meeting my own immediate needs. Lord, forgive me for that. And I pray you would strengthen and build that burden in my heart to keep praying for my for my brothers and sisters who suffer for your name. And I pray that you would do that in the whole of this church and that we would see people, Lord. I pray the fruit of this is that the people here would be thinking more and remember in their prayers, Lord, in their quiet time, that they as families, when they would get together and pray, that they would remember to pray for the persecuted church when friends would gather, when the prayer meetings would would gather, that at least for this year, Lord, you would help us to really spend time praying for these people and joining in their suffering and in their ministries, Lord. And Father, again, I thank you for our country and, and I do not want to ever take for granted the freedoms that we have. But Lord, please help the freedoms that we have not make us to be soft, but that we are committed, firm, firm in what we believe in you, Lord Jesus. You are God. You became a human being. You died on the cross. You rose from the dead. You ascended into heaven, and you are coming back someday. Help us to be firm in our belief in this, Lord. And no matter what happens, Whatever we endure will be worth it, times a billion. And I thank you in Jesus' name, amen.